Megan's going to start. We're going to both ta- we're going to tag team this, but Megan's going to start because I, I want to confess right at the beginning when it comes to parenting, Megan is the brains behind the whole operation. I wasn't saying I'm the beauty. I'm de- oh, come on. I'm just saying I might be the brawn behind the whole thing. But anyway, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, Megan Land. Good morning, amazing Glenridge family. I'm going to pray for us before we start. Lord Jesus, we just invite your presence here right now. We thank you for what you are speaking through us and in us and to us. We are so grateful that you are our Father. And we're so grateful that you have, you have a generational blessing for us this morning. And I ask for hearts to be open. I ask that we would be led by you, Holy Spirit. And ask for your presence to come and be very, very close to us. We're so grateful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing. Well, it is such a privilege to speak with you all this morning. And we're actually going to be launching a book that we've written. Um, It's a parenting book. And we're going to be doing that after the meeting. We would love you to join us. We're going to be out here at the cafe. There's going to be a jumping castle, only for the children, Nick. Not for Nick, just for the kids. Um, And it's going to be such fun. We're going to have live music, and we're going to do a short interview, just in terms of looking at the heart behind the book and kind of how it came about. So please join us for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. But this morning is not about a book. It is about what God is doing with us as a community And from the beginning of the year, really, we have been on a bit of a journey. Can somebody tell me what has been the main theme of this year? Just shout it out. Well done. Taking ground. So God has been speaking to us over and over and over again that we are on a journey as a people for taking ground for him. We are taking ground. We are learning through Joshua and the Israelites how we enter in to the promised land, how we enter into God's inheritance for us. And if you think about it, the, the Israelites was not just a mass group of people moving into the promised land. They were families. It was mothers and fathers and children all learning to walk in their inheritance. And what is so amazing is that if they caught that, if they learned to walk in their inheritance then, it wasn't just for them. It was actually for all the generations to come. That if they were able to learn to stand in God's promises, so would all the generations after them. And I'm loving just how Jesus is speaking this morning. He's so faithful. He's speaking through fatherhood. He's speaking through son and daughtership. He's speaking through generations. That what God wants to do in us, it's not just for us. It's actually for generations. So I feel like this morning Jesus wants to realign some things um, in our hearts. He wants to realign what he wants to do. He wants to get us on track so generations will be blessed forever. And so we had the privilege of being a part of the parenting course that we just ran for Equip GC, and the book really came out of that. It's called Heart Shaped Parenting, and it's not about monitoring or controlling our children's outward behavior, which we all love, if we're honest. It's what we want. We want the behavior to be good. Um, But it it really is about 
discipling and training our children's hearts. And it's not just, we're not looking for controlled outward behavior. We're looking for transformed hearts for Jesus. So that is what the book about is about. We would love you um, to join us in, in celebrating that. But what I want to do first is look at the first family on earth, Adam and Eve, and see what we can learn from them. Adam and Eve had an incredible, unbroken union with the Father. They had all that they needed in relationship with God. They were meant to fill the world with people in his perfect image. And Satan could not imagine anything worse than God's image filling the earth. God's image that has no room and no space for Satan. No room and no space for his lies. So he had no time to waste, and he acted quickly with these two image bearers before they understood completely what they had. So using doubt as his tool, the serpent prepared the soil in their hearts. And I want us to look quickly at Genesis 3, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open it there. It says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? And by entering into a conversation with the serpent, Eve allowed the garden of her heart to be loosened and to be tilled. Not by God, but by Satan. And two lies were planted. We're going to look at these lies. Genesis 3, verse 4 to 5, just a little bit further down. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So lie number one, that Satan told Eve that she received into her heart, was that she was incomplete. She was incomplete. She needed more than what God could give her. And this led to the fear of unfulfillment. Lie number two, and this is the biggest lie of all, is that God is not trustworthy. He cannot be trusted. He's holding out on us. And this lie led to the fear of trust. Eve believed both lies and fear set in, and she exchanged the perfect relationship that she already had with God. She had everything, everything she needed for the idol the serpent offered her, which was knowledge without the need for God. And an idol is a God substitute. It can be anything we turn to instead of God to meet our needs, to fill us up. But as we know, only God, only God can do that in our lives. After Adam and Eve made the exchange, further lies in the form of ungodly thoughts watered these seeds, watered these foundational lies. So they began by believing the lies, and then their thoughts were affected. Can any of us relate to this? As we start believing lies, our mind becomes the battlefield. So they thought, we are shameful. We are naked. We should be afraid of God, and we should hide. And then the destructive patterns in their lives began. They hid, they ran from God, and they shifted blame. The tree of idolatry was in full bloom in their hearts. And we can see this scenario over and over again 
in the lives of people around us, but we can see this over and over again in our own hearts, in our own lives as well. A lie leads to a fear, which leads to an idol, followed by ungodly thoughts and destructive patterns. And the heart of the issue is actually idolatry. Will we allow something else to take the place of God in our lives? Will we allow something else to be the source? And when the lies and fear come, will we turn to him or something else to make us feel better about ourselves? That's the question he's asking us this morning. 1 John 5 verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. My husband's going to come up now and take it from here. Fourteen years ago, we had two toddlers, one four years old. Here, Megan. Thank you very much. One two years old. And we also had a couple of guys that lived with us who were 21 at the time. France Malakwan and Temba Shlomuka. Temba's in the UK now. And uh, I remember vividly my little four-year-old Jonas having learned, first learned how to use scissors. Megan had taught him how to use scissors. And I came into my room one, one afternoon to see that my pillowcase had been cut straight up the middle. So I obviously clued into who it was. So I asked Jonas to join me in my room and sit on the edge of my bed. And he came, this handsome man. Jonas, why don't you come up here so we can give people a visual <laughs> of what happened. And bring, all those, bring all those chairs right there. So he was uh, slightly ta- uh, smaller than he is now, and, but just as good looking. Hey, girls. Kind of mentioning that out there for you, Jonas, trying to help you. And so Jonas sat on my bedside, and, and I looked at Jonas, and I said these words. I asked him a question. I started first, though, by prefacing the question with Jonas. I'm going to ask you something, and if you will be honest and tell me the complete truth, you won't get in trouble. But if you lie to me, you will get in trouble. I said, do you understand that? And Jonas said, yes, Dad. So I said, Jonas, did you take some scissors and cut my pillowcase? And Jonas flat out said, no, Dad. I said, okay, w- wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you hear what I said? If you tell the truth, you will not get in trouble. If you lie to me, you will definitely get in trouble. Did you cut the pillowcase? No, Dad. Okay, well, well if you didn't cut the pillowcase, I asked, who cut the pillowcase? And he said, Eden. I said, Eden's not even two yet, and she's never even heard of scissors, and you're saying she's cut the pillowcase. He said, Eden did. I said, okay, will you stay right here? I'm going to go get Eden. So I got Eden. Eden, please come up here. And I got Eden up here on the bed, and I sat her down next to Jonas, and they were exactly in this order, and I said, Eden, I'm going to ask you a question. 
If you tell me the truth, you will not get in trouble. If you lie, you most definitely will get in trouble. Do you understand? She says, yes, Dad. So I said, Eden, did you cut Dad's pillowcase with a pair of scissors? And she says, no, I didn't. No, Dad. I said, well, Jonas, Eden says she didn't cut it. And I believe Eden. I said, and if Eden didn't cut it, and you say you didn't cut it, then who cut the pillowcase? And he said, France did it. I said, France did it. 21-year-old France came in here with a pair of scissors, and he cut Dad's pillowcase. And he looks at Eden. I look at Eden. Eden says, France did it. I said, both of you say France did it. And they said, France did it. So I said, stay right here. I'm going to get France. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm so glad to say that France Malakwani is here this morning. France, why don't you come on down? Here he is, a few years later. So I got France to come in, and I set France down on the end of the bed exactly like this. And I said, France, I'm going to ask you a question. If you tell me the truth, you will not get in trouble. But if you lie to me, you will definitely get in trouble. Do you understand? He said, yes. I said, France, did you take a pair of scissors and cut my pillowcase with a pair of scissors? And France said, no, I didn't. And I said, well, France, Jonas says that you did. And he looked at Jonas and he says, what? I didn't do that. Jonas is petrified at this point. He has been caught out. And he's just like stiff. He's like staring straight ahead. France is looking at him. Eden's looking at him thinking, she's, I'm not, uh, just count me out. I'm not in this anymore. <laughs> Jonas stares straight ahead. And I look and I said, Jonas, France didn't do it. Eden didn't do it. You say you didn't do it. And Jonas, with all sincerity, says, they did it by themselves. I said, the scissors came in without any help and cut the pillowcase straight up the middle. He said, yes, Dad. I looked at Eden. I looked at France, and they were like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to vouch for that. I, it doesn't sound quite where. So I said, thank you, France and Eden. I said, you can go. Jonas and I have some business to attend to. Can we say thank you to these three? Thank you, France. There are two lessons from that story that we can learn today. And the first is this, that in parenting, there is a difference between three things, but particularly in that scenario, it's a difference between recklessness and rebellion. So the, the three things are restlessness, recklessness, and rebellion. Those three things, and you have to parent differently within those three things. Because the motive behind them is very different. And in this scenario, we could see that Jonas went from recklessness into rebellion, which we needed to deal with. So let me give you a little, uh, just a rundown of what I mean by the differences. Restlessness and the motive behind is when the children are exhausted, or when they're bored, or when they're lonely, they can get restless. 
And that looks like things like whining and nagging and getting attention through negative behavior, having meltdowns. We know all about that. Recklessness, the motive behind, is curiosity or peer influence or indiscretion. They're just being silly. They're not thinking about their actions. It looks like acting without regard to others. It looks like using thoughtless speech. It looks like copying bad behavior from peers. Rebellion, however, is the motive behind it is bitterness and control and manipulation. Very different. It looks like disobeying directly or subtly. It looks like delayed obedience. It looks like throwing tantrums in order to manipulate outcomes. All three of those are different, and they need to be parented differently. So with restlessness, we want to potentially adjust the circumstances. They're exhausted, and that might be your fault as a parent. You haven't actually given them the space to rest, or they might need nap time, or whatever it might be. You might have been dragging them from one thing to another. It could be lonely. It could be a few things. And so we need to adjust the circumstances in that case. Recklessness, however, we want to adjust the mindset. You can't take scissors and cut it up. We're going to have to work on this. We're going to have to train Jonas. We're going to have to teach him to understand the use of scissors. But now once Jonas went into lying, all of a sudden we're dealing with a heart issue, and we have to adjust the heart. And rebellion is a different thing altogether. And we teach that in the book, and it's too much to explain now. I'll show you the difference and the different ways in which you can do that. But the second lesson that we learned from that story was that good behavior was not our end goal. We wanted to shape Jonas's heart towards godly behavior. And that's our aim, fundamentally different than most or many parents on this earth. Our aim as believers is we want to see them in godly behavior, which means their hearts are being shaped for him and his purposes. I told Jonas explicitly that he would not get in trouble if he told the truth. But he found himself in an Adam and Eve scenario. He still wanted to decide to, ta- he decided to take his chances through lying. Somewhere along the line, Jonas had believed the lie that this failure was way too much for mom and dad to handle. I've messed up. They're not going to be able to handle this well. He's out of control, and he begins to take it, control into his own hands and begins to do the things that we saw Adam and Eve do. There is a war that wages for your heart and for your children's heart. Satan attacks with lies in that war. God counters with truth. But not just truth statements or truth principles. He counters with the truth named Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth that combats the lies that the enemy tells your children from the day they are born and has been telling you also. And I'm going to explain how Jesus is the truth in a moment. But our words and our actions as parents, they either reinforce one or the other. The lies or Jesus as the answer. In my years of of ministry, I've counseled many men. It's hard. I can't even count. Maybe up to 200. Hearing their story, listening to their life story, tracing how it's unraveled so. 
And what I've discovered through the years of over 20 years of doing this is that over and over again, we come back to five pretty much foundational lies in our, in our story. We can trace them down. Five lies that I believe are direct lies the enemy tells us right from birth. And they can wreak incalculable havoc. If we don't take those lies and fears to God, we will take them to an idol. We will look for a God substitute to alleviate that fear and to counter those lies if we don't take it to God. And here are the lies. The first lie is that you are unwanted. It's the lie that you are unloved, which then leads to a fear of being rejected. And from that fear of being rejected, we can go all sorts of directions into idols. We can look towards relationships. We can start looking for approval addiction. These are the idols of our lives. Don't think little image that's carved out of wood. Think a little bit more conceptually than that. Your approval addiction is an idol that you're trying to ha- use to substitute what God can only do, the fear of re- uh, alleviate the fear of rejection and the lie of being unwanted. Or image idols. The second lie is the lie that you are insignificant. It's a lie that you have no purpose, that you are purposeless. And it leads to the fear of insignificance, which leads to idols such as success or superiority. We always kind of put our opinion on people. It's those kind of power lies, those power idols that we we tend to go towards to find significance. The next lie is the lie that you are a failure. It's the lie that you are shameful. It's not the lie that you have failed, because failure God deals, deals with all the time. But it's the lie that you are a failure, that you are shameful, which leads to the fear of failure. And the idols that we tend to go towards are things, and they're always control idols, of the ability to, to control ourselves, like perfectionism, or to control our surroundings, like certainty. We always play it safe. We don't take any risks. Or perhaps it's the lie of even performance, and you're always demanding, controlling performance from everybody else. Because you've got a fear of failure and you've gone to those idols. Next one is a fear, sorry, is the lie that you are incomplete. It's the lie that you will never be fulfilled. You'll never be whole. It leads to the fear of unfulfillment. We grab idols like pleasure or even wisdom, education, or materialism. And then the last... And the foundational lie, as Megan said, it's the one upon which all lies rest. In fact, it's, it's the heart of every sin. And especially every destructive pattern can be traced back through the lies and often to this cornerstone lie that God cannot be trusted. It's the lie that God is neither great or good. This leads to a fear of trust. Idols like independence... Or even grasping ideologies. You see it now in the West. Going for this ideology and that ideology. Anything but God. It's the idols of self-protection. Because of the fear of trust. And the lie that God cannot be trusted. So that's the tree. And the reason each of these lies is so powerful in our lives. Is because they represent something of the longing that's deep within us. We can relate to them. They sound believable. Because they speak into the very depths, the things that we all long for. Every single one of us, and your children included, long to be loved. 
They want to be in a family. They want to belong. And they want to be in community. We have a longing for purpose. We want to make a contribution to the world. It's a God-given longing. You are made to make a meaningful con- con- sorry, contribution. It's a longing that God intends to fill. And so the lie sounds real when we think that we might not be able to. We have a longing to do things well. We want to bless others. We don't want to be failures. We have a longing to be fulfilled. The thought of, of being content and satisfied is deep in our hearts. And we have a longing to believe. We want to be able to place faith in someone, something that's higher than ourselves, something that we know is a lot more reliable than we are, something that's much more infinite than our finite selves. For Adam and Eve, those longings were completely met in God. He designed human beings in such a way that in relationship he could meet all of those needs. And he was in relationship with them. And through that dialogue with a serpent, Eve started to doubt what she already had. The devil told Eve that she could find those things outside of God. The irony was that she already already had them. And she lost the very thing that she thought she was going to gain. So that's the story of our sinful lives. And the Adam and Eve story plays over and over again in our lives. Until we find Jesus to stop the cycle, to stop the lies, and we begin to apply Him, not just truth in objective terms, truth in relational terms to him, of Him. Because He, after all, is purpose, He is victory, He is love, He is fulfillment. Jesus is the solution to every lie. He's the answer. He is the one who sets us free. As much as we, Megan and I, believe that parents play a vital role, ultimately, we are not the answer to the longings of our children's hearts. He's the answer to the longing in your children's hearts and to your heart as well. And we're not talking about the religion of Christianity. We're not talking about principles that can kind of set them on the right path. We're talking about a real, intimate, life-giving relationship with Jesus. The Bible says when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we join Him on His journey to reach the earth. We come into the very Trinity itself, full of love, full of purpose, meaning, and fulfillment. We become a part of Him. So let's go back to the verse. Megan mentioned this verse in 1 John 5, 21. said, little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, to understand how the Apostle John intended us to keep ourselves from idols, we have to go back to the verses that precede it. So what was, how do we do that? Well, he tells us, starting with verse 18, John says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. In other words, the destructive patterns don't keep going if you get God at the root to cut them off. We're not... We're not slaves now to sin. We don't keep on sinning. And this is for time's sake. Move down to verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may, here's the key, know Him who is true. Not know the truth that we find in the Bible, but know Him who is truth that we find in the Bible. 
Know him who is truth. And we are in him. We're in him who is true. In, he makes it real explicit here, in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer, he says. He is the true God and eternal life. Therefore, little children, keep yourself from idols. You don't need them. You don't need them to alleviate, alleviate the fear and the lies underneath that fear. Jesus will do that. He is truth. He is in you. Jesus does not come with truth. He is truth. And Jesus says it very explicitly in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth. He's not somebody who comes with truth. He's not somebody who can point you to truth. He is truth and the life. God doesn't just replace the lies with good Christian principles for life. He replaces the lies with a relationship with Him. Jesus wants to fulfill the longings of your children's hearts. And He'll do that because He is the abundant life. Here's the good tree. At the roots, we see the very beginning, the foundational truth is Jesus Himself. Jesus in them is love. He doesn't just give them love. He becomes love in them. God himself is defined as love in the Bible. You ever find that curious? God is love. What's he trying to tell you? He's saying, it's me. I am love inside you. To have Jesus is to have love, complete, belonging. With the faith that I belong, love is inside of me. Caught up in the very love relationship that Jesus has with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the perfect first family. Notice Megan said, Adam and Eve, the first family on earth. The first family is God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus in them is purpose. He doesn't just give them purpose. He becomes their purpose. To be with Him, to be like Him, to do what He's doing. It's all the purpose they can ever need. Jesus in them is victory. He is not a failure. When our children are found in Him, they know that they cannot be failures. My children have learned a saying that we have in our family, and it was passed down from my grandfather to my father, from father to me, and now me to my children. And it goes like this. Anytime they have a big thing that they're facing, a big trial or a test or whatever it might be, I'll ask them, how tall are you? And they know that there's only one answer to that question. So they'll sometimes get out of the car and I'll say, kids, big day today. Tell me how tall are you? They're not allowed to say their actual height. They're only allowed to say, I'm 10 feet tall. So my grandfather used to tell my dad, my dad told me. And I'd always have to say, 10 feet tall, dad, 10 feet tall. Since understanding what I've explained to you today, I realize that there's something that's missing. There's another question that needs to be asked after that. Children, how tall are you? They say 10 feet tall. The next question is this. Why? Why? Because I don't want them to go off into school and to face their trials thinking they can manage it and they can figure it out whenever they've got Jesus in them. 
who's the very one who wants to manage it, the very one who wants to figure it out. Christ in them is their X factor, is what sets them apart from the entire rest of everybody else who doesn't have Christ. Christ is their X factor. God inside of them is their X factor. So now I say, how tall are you? They say, 10 feet tall. And I say, why? And their only response is because Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And I'm in Christ. Wow. Don't forget it. They can never be failures. I don't want them to get to the end of a, of a job or, or, or they, they get terminated from or a business that fails or even a marriage, I pray not, but that is on rocky grounds and they somehow think, oh, I'm a failure. God was, I, I, I tried to do all this on my own. I want them at every turn to say Christ is with me even in the darkest hour, even in this moment of trial. Christ is with me. I'm not a failure because Jesus is not a failure. How could I be a failure? And things might have gone wrong. And failure may have happened. But there's a promise that says God turns everything for the good to those who love Him, who are in relationship with Him. They are not failures. They might fail. They are not failures. Jesus in them is fulfillment. You alone, he alone can complete them. He makes them whole. Jesus in them is truth. Freedom from the lies is not found in the absence of lies, but in relationship with Christ. The lies are not going away, but Jesus is coming to stay. That's what parenting is about. Megan, please come up. Megan's going to finish. Isn't Jesus amazing? He is why we have hope. And I feel like if you are parents here this morning and you're feeling hopeless and you're feeling like, man, things have gone wrong, I am not on that track. I just feel like Jesus is saying he is your hope. That nothing that has happened in the past is unredeemable. Everything can be redeemed. And he has promised to work all things for our good. All things. So this is the morning to get back on track with what Jesus wants to do. Because what he wants to do in us, remember it's not just about us. Whether you have children here this morning or not, what he wants to do in us is about generations. It's about generations after us. So it is clear the best thing that we can do as parents is we lead them to Jesus. Our goal isn't even their comfort or their happiness. Our goal is that they would know Christ through and through for the rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives. And to be able to do this well, just like everything in life, as parents, we have to look at ourselves. We have to look at our hearts. Do we consider Christ our source? Do we live like Jesus is our source? Because we can't lead our children into this, guys, if we don't believe it ourselves, if we don't lead like it. Is Jesus our source? How is your relationship with God this morning? Have you bought into some of these lies that are now playing 
wreaking havoc in your mind? Or are you standing on the ultimate truth of God? Also, we need to consider the influences in our own lives. So we have counseled so many people who have been impacted negatively or hurt by influence in their lives when they are children. So as parents, we need to think about who are the people influencing us? Who are the people influencing our children? Those will be people in their home. That will be people we choose to spend time with. Being a part of a life-giving church family is essential to growing them up to know God. The youth group's been amazing for our kids, especially working through the teenage years and having people around and other adults who are trying to live for God. And they can support each other. They can speak life. They can speak life into one another. And become a God-worshipping family. So we often talk about how we do not want to miss out on worship times because worship is an obvious way of putting God first in our lives. Worship God together. Make worship a lifestyle at church but also in the home. Let it be a lifestyle in your family. We'll often pray on the way to church for the worship time, for our hearts to be open to receive whatever God wants to do in us this morning. Be a God-worshipping family. So the main aim of parenting is not to control behavior, but it's to disciple transformed hearts that for the rest of their lives, our children will be able to stand on the truth of Christ, that they will not use a God substitute to meet their needs, but they will stand on Christ so generations after them and generations after them will be able to walk in the promised land with God. Wonderful. You know, just, uh, you know, these five lies, that's not just for kids. Obviously, you're getting that. It's actually what we believe. And that's the way God parents us, is to get us out of those lies and into truth. And the reality is this, friends. Actually, good parenting, if you listen to what Drew and Megan have said, it's got to do with us, not about our kids. It's got to be with, where's my heart? Where's my focus? Where's my intent? Am I worshiping? Am I loving? Am I living in the truth? And I feel like God wants to minister to a group of people today in one specific area. It's an area where you have failed, maybe even as a parent. And you've failed, maybe you've had a failed marriage. And maybe you've had a failed business. Maybe you've lived in this kind of failed environment And you've started to believe the truth that you are a failure. And what Drew and Megan have unpacked for us this morning is that that is the lie from the pit of hell. God does not say you're a failure. God wants to give you the truth of Jesus Christ and put you back into significance and put you back into your place so that you can be the person you're called to be and the parent you're called to be if you've got children. Can Can we stand, please, if you don't mind? That was outstanding. Before we leave this morning, don't leave without hearing God and being obedient to Him and stepping into by faith what He's saying right now. 
If you have failed in some area, it could be in any area, and you've grown to believe that you are a failure because you failed, this morning God is going to break that off of you and put you back into his plan because you're going to start to believe again that you're a son of God or a daughter of God. Because the Father in heaven does not see you as a failure. He sees you as somebody that's made some mistakes or had some mistakes made to you. And he wants to heal you this morning. He wants to forgive you this morning. He wants to put you right with him this morning.